that is obscured by visiting defilements, or in Pali the word is kalesa, but that the mind in itself is pure. So what does this mean? When we hear a sound just now in the moment, relaxing back into the moment, being simply in the moment of hearing, in the awareness of hearing, or the feeling of a breath, or a sensation in the body. It's simply known with a tremendous clarity and ease. In that moment of direct awareness, there's no problem before our mind jumps in with all sorts of reactivity. The nature of the mind is radiant, it's pure, it's empty like space. It's unobstructed. The mathematician who I believe taught at Harvard, uh, I'm not exactly sure, his name is Robert Kaplan, and he recently wrote a book with a wonderful title uh, called The Nothing That Is, and it's a book on the history of zero, you know, as a mathematical concept. And I basically could follow it for the first sentence or two. <laughs> but the first sentence was wonderful, you know, I, which I would like uh, to quote to you. He said, and this was the opening of the book, when we look at zero, we see nothing. But when we look through it, we see the world. And it just struck me as a wonderful expression of the nature of our own minds, that empty space-like nature. When we look for it, we see nothing, look through it, and we see the world. So the question I would like to really address this evening in some detail is not so much the exploration of this empty, clear nature of mind, but what is it in our lives and in our practice that obscures it? If the mind is inherently, inherently radiant and pure and empty and clear, why aren't we mostly living in that space of ease? What is it that obscures it for us? The clouds that obscure this open space of mind, this open space of awareness, are called, <coughs> in Buddhism in translation, the afflictive emotions. That's one translation of this Pali word kalesa. That is, those emotions or mind states that afflict us with suffering. Not only afflict us, but cause suffering for others. We can see it so clearly in the world. You know, when we look about and see what's happening in the world, in situations which are so prevalent of injustice, of war, of violence, of hunger, what are these situations of tremendous suffering for so many people, where do they come from? Fundamentally, they come from forces in the mind of hatred, of fear, 
of greed, of envy. All of those, or many of those situations in the world are simply those mind states getting acted out in the way people relate to one another. Now the most important understanding in this, I think, is to realize that it's not only out there. It's not only others who have these afflictive emotions and are acting them out in life. It's us. That when we look carefully, when we look honestly at our own minds, and this is the great gift of meditation practice. You know, we sit and there's no avoiding what it is that's arising in our minds. And we see that these very same forces that cause so much suffering in the world are also operating within ourselves. So how do we work with it? How do we free ourselves from being caught by or lost in these afflictive emotions? these emotions that cause so much suffering. The first steps, the necessary steps, are a clear recognition of what's arising and a quality of acceptance. Now sometimes people might hear acceptance and think that that means justifying these emotions or drowning in them, getting lost in them, wallowing in them. It's not what acceptance means in this context. Acceptance means that we know what's arising, we're aware of what's appearing in our minds with mindfulness. We actually can see it and be open to it. I want to read just a few lines of a Rilke poem. He said, I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere because where I am folded, there I am a lie. And when I read that, it seemed to me so much the process of meditation, unfolding. But unfolding means a willingness to see those places in ourselves where we are folded, where we are caught. If we can't be accepting of every side of ourselves, if we're lost in the pattern of avoiding or denying or suppressing these afflictive emotions as they come up, there's no possibility of living in a free way. But as I'm sure most of you know, it's not so easy to open to this side of ourselves, to really be willing to see the greed that's there, or the fear, or the jealousy, or the pride, or the hatred, or whatever it may be. 
we begin to see those qualities and a very immediate reaction very often is that we begin judging ourselves. I remember clearly in my early days of practice as I began to see all of these forces within my own mind running to my teacher Munindraji and just going on and on to him about what a bad person I was (laughs) because it was the first time that I had actually turned my attention inward instead of spending my life looking outward and it was quite a shock. I think it was Zorba the Greek, Uh, I'm not sure, but I think it was from him. (laughs) He said, self-knowledge is always bad news. (laughs) (laughs) And I think any meditator knows that. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, there we are, face to face, you know, with all these things in ourselves. And sometimes it feels like we're drowning in them. You know, and sometimes it's difficult to see, well, where's the way out? Where is the freedom? You know, in the midst of all these patterns. Jung, Carl Jung said something very much to the point here. He said, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. The latter procedure, however, is disagreeable and therefore not very popular. <laughs> it is disagreeable. So how can we begin to illuminate the shadow side? And how can we begin to practice opening to these qualities, to these mind states within ourselves? How do we become accepting of them? In my experience, one of the most critical supports for acceptance is the aspect of clear recognition of what's really there. So when I'm not clear about what's present, it's much harder to be accepting. The problem with emotions is that recognition is not always so easy because emotions are amorphous. They're not as clear-cut as when we hear a sound or feel a sensation or even have a thought which may be, you know, slippery, but it has a definite beginning, middle and end, even if we're aware of it after the fact. But emotions or moods or mind states they're not that clearly defined in our experience. And so often we're feeling things and we don't quite know what we're feeling. And yet to become really accepting, particularly when we're caught or reactive, the recognition plays a really important role. One question which I've used very effectively in my practice when I'm going through some feeling state, emotional state, and I don't know what it is, but I feel caught by it in some way, I'll sit back and I'll simply ask the question, okay, what's happening? So instead of trying to pinpoint, you know, and use my mind in a highly focused way, 
trying to pinpoint what it is, it's more like settling back with that question, okay, what's happening? So that opens the space to more intuitively feel what it is. And very often the answer to that question, what's happening? Confusion. Confusion is happening, or chaos is happening. (laughs) That's fine. In the moment of recognizing that, already we're mindful that we're not caught in it. Clear recognition is often the mechanism through which we can let go. Just one example of this, and I'll mention a few this evening, but you know, at different times in practice in India and Burma, one of the conditions one deals with a lot is a lot of loud noise. You know, when I was practicing especially, they were doing a lot of construction, and loudspeakers going, and just It was a racket. And, you know, here we come from here, I came, and all this effort and, you know, energy to go to Burma, and, you know, okay, I'll go to the monastery, and I'll go and get enlightened, and there's all this noise going on. And my mind just got into this very irritated place, and I was really caught up in that. And I was trying to note different things, and nothing was really working very well. Until I saw, until I really could clearly recognize that what was going on was the complaining mind. My mind was just sitting there complaining about the conditions. And as soon as I could name it, you know, ah, that's what's happening. You know, complaining, complaining. It was fine. Then I could see it without being so caught, without being so identified with it. And the whole quality of mind eased. So the question then can come up, what keeps us from clearly recognizing what's present? You would think that it would be easy since it's what's present. So why do we often have such a hard time clearly recognizing? There are a few different causes or conditions for us not seeing clearly, especially in the realm of emotion, which is what I'm really focusing on tonight. And it all comes out of practice experience. One reason that we often don't recognize and therefore accept what's there is that at times we are misperceiving. We're taking one emotion and thinking it's something else. So as an example of this, at one point I was on retreat and I was really caught in feelings of sadness. I was just, just sad, sad, sad. And this was going on for so long. You know, it was like days caught in this feeling. I felt like I was caught. I didn't see, it didn't didn't feel free in that experience. So after days of noting sadness, 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 <laughs> I figured something, I better look more carefully. And so I did. I, it's like I stepped back. Okay, what really is this? And I saw that it wasn't sadness. 
it was the feeling of unhappiness. Now, they're pretty close, but they're different. They are actually different feelings. And as soon as I could align myself accurately with what it actually was, in that moment, the mind could become accepting. As long as I was misperceiving it, acceptance was impossible because I wasn't really there for what it was. Does this seem clear to you? And so one thing to do when we feel caught, I mean, in the normal run of things as emotions pass through, there's no need to investigate to this level. But when we're caught or we're feeling stuck, it might be helpful just to check out, okay, is it really what I think it is? Or is it something else? Another reason we sometimes don't recognize clearly what's present is because often emotions come in clusters. You know, they come as a constellation. And so we may be recognizing some aspect, but not really getting the whole picture. So again, as an example of this, Perhaps there's anger arising, you know, and we're noting, we're trying to be mindful, anger, 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 but somehow it's not releasing. Somehow we still feel very caught by it. Well, we're pretty sure it's anger, you know, we're not misperceiving it, but then we might look up, is there something underground? You know, is there an underground spring of emotion that's feeding the anger? There's something else. It might be fear. It might be hurt. It might be self-righteousness. And there could be other things which are also there on an underneath level. My experience has been that in those times when I can see the fullness, and not only the surface emotion, but if there's something underneath feeding it, and I get that whole picture, again, it releases the attachment, come to a place of acceptance. One thing I'd like to emphasize in this way of investigating, it's not so much in the therapeutic mode, which has its own value, certainly in working with emotional patterns. But in this way of working, it's not so much that we're going into our personal story and personal history and getting particularly discursive about it all. What I'm suggesting here is much more those moments of a silent, wordless understanding, really the intuitive. We're just paying attention, paying attention, really with interest. Okay, what is this? Is it being seen accurately? What's underneath? And then just opening to it so that the recognition is an intuitive one. It's not particularly an analytic one. So sometimes we don't recognize what's present because we're misperceiving it. 
We're taking one thing to be another. Sometimes we don't recognize because there are emotions lying underneath which we haven't opened to or acknowledged. Sometimes there are emotions that we're not recognizing and opening because they're too painful. You know, as we all know, there are certain mind states just just as physical sensations in the body can be very painful. The Buddha said emotional pain is much worse, but suffering in the mind is much worse than suffering of the body. And so we need to look, you know, very tenderly just at this whole range and what it might be for us. You know, maybe it's fear that is just too painful to open to, or shame, or unworthiness, or embarrassment, or boredom, you know, or anger, or rage. Let's tell one, this this is a story about not a horrendous emotion, but it illustrates this point of how the unpleasantness of them can obscure our willingness to experience it. About ten years ago, circumstances arose. Um, you know, I had been teaching at IMS from the beginning since 1976, and about ten years ago, and living in the center, you know, all that time, the opportunity to um, have a house built next door, uh, which was a great, great blessing in my life. And so after a lot, I, my mind got quite obsessive in the planning of this. So after all that work and planning and you know, joy, finally I moved in and I started my time in, in this new house doing a month-long retreat. So there I was, having gone from living in just one of the IMS rooms to living in this quite nice house. And as I was sitting on retreat, it's like my mind attacked me. This house is too nice. I shouldn't be living in it. This is not right for a Dharma teacher. On and on and on. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to move out of the house. I'm going to live in the woods. I'm going to give it to the staff. And I was, I mean, it sounds perhaps uh, silly, <laughs> but I was tormenting myself, as one can get on retreat, you know, as you know. <laughs> so I was really suffering. And this was going on for days, you know, where my mind started obsessing about this. So finally, after days of, of the suffering, again, and, and for me at a certain point, suffering really peaks the quality of interest. It's like when I'm lost, I really want to know what is going on. You know, how am I getting so caught? So after days of this, it's like I looked really carefully and I saw that what I was feeling at that time, I was embarrassed. But the feeling of embarrassment was so uncomfortable that I didn't want to I didn't want to acknowledge it. I'd rather move out of the house. <laughs> Well, as soon as I saw that, oh yeah, this is just the feeling of embarrassment. It was a lot easier just to open to it and feel it than move out. (laughs) (laughs) 
Oh, and I'm glad I made that decision. <laughs> so this is just, as I say, a, a very simple example of how sometimes a feeling is uncomfortable to us that we do all of these machinations simply not to feel it. You know, often people who have not been on retreat before and they're kind of thinking about going, the apprehension you know, about being on a silent retreat, the apprehension about boredom or about loneliness or whatever, you know, not speaking for 10 days, it can cause so much anxiety. And really, what is that about? It's, it's a fear of certain kinds of feelings. So our practice is really seeing when that happens and then reminding ourselves, okay, this is okay. Even if it's a painful feeling, I can be with it. I can look at it. I can feel it. I can accept it. Pascal, the famous French philosopher and mathematician, he said, most of the world's problems would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. So you're all doing your part to solve the world's problems. And it's true, because so much of what we do in the world is done as a way of avoiding feeling certain things. But through the amazing magic and power of awareness, of meditation, we say, yes, I can feel it even when it's painful. So how can we learn to open to painful feelings. Thich Nhat Hanh, you know, speaks wonderfully of this, really talking of how compassion for the feelings themselves really helps us to open, to be aware, to recognize them. So I want to read a little something that he wrote about working with anger, which is a hard feeling to open to. He said, the Buddhist attitude is to take care of anger. We don't suppress it. We don't run away from it. We just breathe and hold it with utmost tenderness. The anger is no longer alone. And again, you could substitute any emotion for anger. It could be fear, it could be rage, it could be shame, it's whatever. The anger is no longer alone. It is with our mindfulness. Anger is like a closed flower in the morning. As the sun shines on the flower, the flower will bloom because the sunlight penetrates deeply into the flower. Mindfulness is like that. If you keep breathing, mindfulness particles will infiltrate the anger. When sunshine penetrates a flower, the flower cannot resist. It has to open itself and show its heart to the sun. If you keep shining your compassion and understanding on it, your anger will soon crack, and you will be able to look into its depths and see its roots. And just when I read this, it felt like such a wonderful image. It's like not only compassion for other people or compassion for ourselves, but almost, it's almost like personifying the anger, compassion for the anger itself. which helps us hold it 
in a soft and delicate way. And this is true for any difficult emotion, holding it with compassion. As long as we're unwilling to feel certain emotions, we live defensively. We live our lives protecting ourselves from having those feelings. And it becomes so much freer to realize, you know, through our own practice and experience, that it is possible to open to them, to feel them. It's okay. So we may not recognize and accept certain emotions because we're misperceiving them. There may be clusters that we're not seeing the totality. It may be that they're too painful and we think we can't bear them. Sometimes we don't open to emotions, especially painful ones, because we have some idea in our mind that spiritual people don't have them. You know, spirit really people on the path, spiritual practitioners, don't have anger and hatred and jealousy and pride and envy. Therefore, being a good meditator, anger and pride and jealousy can't be arising. Well, this is clearly a path to self-delusion. <laughs> And so it's just to be watchful if there should be even hints of that tape in the mind, you know, of idealizing what a practitioner should, should or should not be feeling. And to realize that, as one yogi once said to me in an interview, the mind has no pride. It will do anything. Anything can arise. And the arising of these states are not the problem. The problem is in the way we relate to them. Do we relate to them skillfully or unskillfully? So we need to bring wisdom. Once we have come to this place of clear recognition and of acceptance, we see what's there and we're open to it. That then is the groundwork, the foundation. It opens the possibility of actually bringing wisdom, a deep wisdom, a transforming wisdom to what it is that's happening. We need to exercise what has become a very felicitous phrase in our culture we need to exercise some emotional intelligence. We need to begin to discriminate wisely between those emotions, what in Buddhism are called skillful or wholesome, and which are unskillful and unwholesome. Now what does skillful and unskillful mean? It's very pragmatic. It's not some arbitrary code. Skillful means those mind states, those feelings, those emotions that are conducive to our happiness and peace and the happiness and peace of others. Unskillful 
means those mind states, those emotions, which lead to suffering for ourselves and others. So there's a very pragmatic check. But this wise differentiation is also very delicate because for many of us there's a very slippery slope between seeing oh that mind state is unwholesome and the thought or the idea I'm a bad person that is not helpful that is not the exercise of wisdom. Or even thinking that, yes, this mind state, this emotion is unskillful, it's unwholesome, it causes suffering, and therefore it shouldn't be arising. And so then get involved in a lot of self-judgment and self-condemnation. That's just adding to the problem. That's just compounding the unskillful mind states. We are all conditioned in so many different ways with different emotional patterns. And the Buddhist psychology, they have a wonderful typology of personality types. And I found it really helpful. Basically, they talk about three kinds of people, three major types, the greedy type, the angry type, and the deluded type. The greedy type always sees what they want. The angry type sees what's wrong. The deluded type doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> and each one has a positive side as well. You know, the, the enlightened side of greed is faith. The enlightened side of anger is wisdom, is insight, that wise discrimination. And the, the enlightened side of delusion is equanimity. So there's, there's the positive side. And each one is also has its own characteristics. It was interesting to me when the Buddha said that greed... No, that hatred is more dangerous, but it's easier to uproot. Greed is less harmful, but harder to uproot. The reason I like this characterization of our emotional patterns is because it depersonalizes it. You know, it helps us see, and, you know, we're just about to start the three-month retreat uh, in Barry, and there's a collective of teachers. And among many other reasons, I really enjoy the group because there are representatives of each of these types <laughs> among the teacher collective. And it's so interesting in our teacher meetings because in one way we're each like cartoon characters <laughs> playing out our type, you know. And, but knowing it and recognizing it really brings a great deal of humor to the situation. You know, and it helps through depersonalizing it to see it more clearly. So we're not so lost, we're not so caught in it. The great lesson is that whatever our particular pattern is, you know, we each have our own subsets of these, it's all workable. 
It's not that any particular pattern condemns us to a life of suffering. It's all workable because we can learn how to relate in a skillful way. Why is it important to discriminate between the skillful and unskillful states? If we don't, we are simply acting out whatever our habit patterns happen to be. If we are aware and we bring this quality of emotional intelligence, yes, hatred is unskillful. Love is not a bad idea. You know, we begin to see what causes happiness, what causes suffering, then we have the wisdom to know these states should be abandoned, these states should be cultivated. If we're not taking the time to investigate our own experience, and again, none of this should be taken on belief. It's not a question of just hearing these teachings and either believing or disbelieving, that's irrelevant. It's really to take them as an invitation to investigate our own mind and our own experience. If we don't bring this investigation and this intelligence to the world of our emotions, then we stay caught in our patterns. And the patterns can be tremendously seductive. Just as one example of the seduction for example, of anger, where, especially among the angry types, it comes a lot. It's a, it can be a recurring pattern in one's life, that aversive quality. But it's very seductive. The Buddha, the Buddha had such good words for it. He said, anger with its poisoned source and fevered climax murderously sweet. You know, and I think we all know that feeling when you know, we're really caught by that energy. There is something murderously sweet about it. And yet it has a poisoned source. So we need to be willing to look deeper, to look underneath, and really apply this intelligence. You know, what emotions, what mind states are onward leading for our happiness and the happiness of others, and which are not, which are productive of suffering. It's this kind of intelligence that really brings an ethical dimension to psychology. And this is so important, because it's not enough, although it's very important to recognize and be accepting of what's present, it's not enough. We need to add this ethical dimension of understanding, okay, which is productive of suffering, which the conditions of happiness. And I think in the world of contemporary psychology, a great this can be a great gift of Buddhism to that whole world. The Buddha established, understood this ethical psychology 2,500 years ago. So we need to be willing to look and to investigate. 
some distinctions between wholesome and unwholesome are very obvious. Hatred, pretty obvious, not a good idea. Love, pretty obvious, it's a good way to go. Greed, it doesn't really serve that many people. Generosity, we feel good, other people feel good. So these are obvious, these are obvious distinctions. There are more subtle distinctions where it's not necessarily clear. We're not seeing the subtleties of what's skillful and what's unskillful. So just as a few examples of these more subtle discriminations that we can make. One confusion that is so predominant you know, in most people's lives is the confusion between the feelings of love and attachment. It's very hard, you know, in the, in the relationships, our closest relationships, where we feel the most love, for, I would say for most or many people, very hard to separate out, how could I possibly have those feelings of love without attachment? Are they really different? Are they two different things? And yet they are very different feelings with very different consequences. If we take the time to look, not simply go on in our habit patterns, but really have the interest to examine and investigate, we see, and I invite you to do this, and the next time when you really are feeling most loving, just pay attention to the quality of your energy at that time. What, is that, what does that loving energy feel like? My experience has been that it's a giving. It's the energy going out. You know, it's like a, a generosity of the heart. What's attachment? Pay attention to the next time where you really feel like you're attached to the person. That's a holding. It's a taking. In one way, they're very opposite energies, and yet often we think they necessarily go together. What's the consequence of attachment in our lives? Fear. Fear of loss. With love, there's no fear. In fact, Buddha talked of love being the antidote to fear. So these are a subtlety of emotion that we can really begin to unpack with attendant much greater ease in our lives. Another confusion that often happens and has so many consequences for suffering in the world the confusion we have, often not realizing it, between indifference and equanimity. And we can feel quite spacious and open and equanimous, and yet it's really not equanimity. It could very well be indifference, not connecting, whether it's with experience within ourselves or experience in the world, 
you know, we feel at ease, but it's not because of the impartiality of equanimity, it's because of the withdrawal of indifference. Do you see the difference between these two? Equanimity holds it all impartially. That's the characteristic of equanimity. Indifference pulls back. But these are subtle. We need to really be watching our lives and our experience carefully. I'll just mention one other. There are many, many of these emotions that are close to one another, but actually quite different. But one that's especially useful for meditators is a confusion that at first you would think would not arise at all, but sneaks in. And that is the difference between sloth, sloth and torpor, and compassion. Uh, well, you know, how <laughs> they seem really different. <laughs> Compassion is that feeling that wants to alleviate suffering. So those of you who have done meditation, or especially been on retreat, have you ever had the experience, you're tired, you know, you put in a hard day, I should really take care of myself, you know, let me lie down, this is, it's time. And we have this sense that it's, Yeah, I'm being compassionate to myself. And maybe you are. But the characteristic of sloth is retreating from difficulty. That's the nature of sloth. It doesn't mean just sleepiness. It's that energetic contraction, the energetic retreat from some difficulty. And so very often I'm just highlighting this difference so that we really pay attention, so we're not fooling ourselves. Okay, the next step, and this is the last piece that I'd like to talk about, in order to work, to be free in, with afflictive emotions, we need to recognize clearly what they are, we need to come to a place of acceptance, we need to be able to distinguish between the skillful ones and the unskillful ones so we know what to cultivate and practice and what to let go of, what to abandon. The last piece, which is really the key to liberation, the key to transformation, is at the same time that we're open to feeling what's present, we also learn how not to identify with these emotions. Now what does that mean? What does identification with emotion mean? It means that sense, that added sense, not only of anger being present, but the taking of the anger to be self, to be I. I'm angry, I'm happy, I'm sad, I'm joyous. We're adding that sense of I to the bare experience of the emotions. Now it would be interesting for you to explore in your sitting or just in your day to look very clearly in your own experience at the difference between 
kinds of emotion arising when we're mindful of them, we're aware, and it's that sense of them washing through. Notice the difference between that and times when there's that feeling of being really caught in them through identification, where there's that sense, ah, I'm really angry, or I'm really happy. And if we can remember even for a few moments of mindfulness then, I think you will notice that in that claiming of these emotions to be I and mine, there is a contraction. There's an energetic tightening. And that tightening is coming from the identification with the emotion, not from the emotion itself. It takes some practice to, to learn to be with emotions, at least at times, without identifying with them, because in some way, emotions are what we most personalize. You know, we can get pretty much a handle on watching the sensations in our body, and even when they're difficult. And even though we're lost in thought a lot, we have a pretty good idea that thoughts are just coming and going and have some sense you know, that maybe they're not I. But emotions, it's like often we feel it's most who we are. So it takes some practice to actually be mindful of them and start relating to them in another way. How can we begin to do this? And this is a practice. This is not going to come know all at once. We can begin to experience emotion selflessly when we see, when we look carefully and see that emotions, like everything else, are arising out of conditions. It's like certain conditions come together and an emotion appears. It's not something that we are, that's in us, that's waiting to appear. It arises as the conditions come together. So what are some of these conditions which we could look for? A very interesting one, but it takes a keen mindfulness, is to notice how often emotions are triggered by thoughts. We have a certain thought, a certain image in the mind, and if we're not mindful of that thought, if we're not aware that we're thinking, and it can be very quick. You know, we think of somebody we like a lot or don't like at all, or the thought comes or the picture comes, and, psh, and immediately it triggers this whole emotional reaction. Well, if we can begin to watch, you know, become mindful enough to catch the thought and then see the emotion just beginning, we realize it's conditioned nature. This is not I, it's not self. Given this, this happens. And we begin to depersonalize it a bit. A large part of what conditions our relationship to emotions is our level of understanding. At different levels of understanding, we relate very differently to different circumstances. So one of my favorite Dharma stories, which you've probably heard a lot, 
it's the story of you know the Zen poet hermit Ryokan, you know, who's this wonderful hermit monk poet who lived in the mountains and just lived very simply in a hut, had very little, and he just wandered through the mountains playing with the village children. Very realized being. Well, he came back to his hut one evening and he saw that the very few possessions that he had had been stolen. I mean, he had almost nothing to begin with, and what he had was stolen. So he looked at the situation and then either wrote or said this haiku poem. The moon at the window, the thief left it behind. Okay, now just picture yourself going home, (laughs) finding all your possessions stolen, the moon at the window, <laughs> the thief, <laughs> unlikely. <laughs> the level of our understanding, the level of our wisdom, conditions the kind of emotions we feel. So they're not something fixed, they're not who we are, they're coming out of all of these various causes. One of the biggest helps in letting go of our identification with emotion, and of course this is, you could say, the underpinning of so much of the wisdom of the Buddha's teachings, is to see and know directly the impermanent nature. I'd just like to read one one small teaching from the Buddha that expresses it so clearly. He said, So indeed, these states, not having been, come into being. Having been, they vanish. Regarding these states, abide unattracted, unrepelled, independent, non-attached, free. Not identified with them, a mind free of barriers. And so when we remember, even when we're caught up in some strong emotion, and it feels like it's been there forever and will be there forever, it's not. It's just another arising phenomenon, arising because of various conditions, arising and then passing away. With all of this, it's important to apply it pragmatically. It's not enough to have kind of a conceptual grasp of how to work with these reflective emotions. We need to apply it in the moment of their arising. That's our challenge. It's very important not to confuse this non-identification with not feeling them because sometimes people misuse this notion. Oh yes, I'm not identified with my feelings. And it's really not non-identification at all. It's really not 
feeling them, not being willing to feel them. And so just to be clear that that's not what this is about. Not identification means we are totally open, we are totally feeling them, but without that extra piece of the I and mine. Now all the mind states are like clouds in the sky. The clouds appear, they form, the conditions change, they disperse. Our whole life is like this play of clouds appearing and dissolving and changing shape. So can we practice being with this and all other, but this particularly this realm of emotion, of mind states that are so powerful in our lives and can cause so much suffering when not understood? Can we practice letting them be in this clear, open, empty, sky-like nature of the heart and mind? This is the possibility of freedom for us. Let's sit for just a moment, and if you have any questions or comments. Before we open it for discussion, if any of you would like to just stand and stretch for a moment or need to leave, this would be a good time. Meditation hall. There is now room upstairs if you would like, those of you who are staying for the question period, uh, you're invited to come upstairs. I hope there'll be enough room. <laughs> you're welcome. Oh, <laughs> Are you staying? Do you need to go? Okay, good. <laughs> so, do you have any questions or comments? Divided between what and what? Part of me is saying I'm not being aware. I'm, I'm running from something. I'm doing two things at once or whatever. And part of me is saying don't run. I don't know how to turn around and, and be in the moment. 
Right, right. Perfect, perfect, perfect illustration of tonight's talk. So the question was uh, about how to turn around and be present when something is going on and the attention seems split and it feels like you're running away from what's actually going on. That would be exactly the time to use that question I suggested. When you feel that distress, of not being present, that becomes the feedback, right? And then to ask the question, okay, what's happening? That's all. Just very simple. Okay, what's happening? And what you might discover, as you just expressed, you might discover, oh, tired. You know, and before that, and this is common, it's like we're trying to look through the tiredness to some experience, not realizing that the tiredness itself is the experience, right? And that simple question, okay, what's happening, allows that stepping back, making like a wide-angle lens that then reveals very simply, oh yeah, tired, or confused, or whatever it might be. It's extremely effective, and it's so simple. Just speak, speak louder. Sadness. Okay, I'm glad you asked. The question was in talking about that, uh, understanding the difference between the sadness and the unhappiness. It seems like such a fine distinction. How do you do that? For, I'm glad you asked it because people have mentioned after I've talked about this. Just uh, yeah, that just seems <laughs> not possible. There are a few aspects here. One is not having the notion that you need to get it right, you know, so that you're not creating a test-like situation for yourself, which you then flunk. So that's not, that's not the way to go. Sometimes you won't be able to really see exactly what it is or what the difference is. But the avenue to open that possibility, and again I repeat, I would do this mostly in times when you really feel stuck in something, not just in the ordinary run of feelings, but when we're really caught. I would say rest in the quality or the trust I'm going to put two words together here, okay? Rest in the trust of intuitive interest. That's all. Where you're just in the experience and you're interested. So there's that quality of, okay, what is this? 
you know, what's going on? And then wait. See what comes. It's not a particularly analytic process. It's just one of the things that happens over time in meditation is that one learns to trust this intuitive wisdom where it comes by itself if we make the space for it and we're attentive. But it doesn't always come in our time frame. <laughs> That's why I say don't, you know, don't create this pressure for yourself. Okay, where's this intuitive wisdom? <laughs> Keep the intuitive interest and then just see. And sometimes it'll become clear and sometimes it won't become clear. But that's the avenue. Interest is a great... That's, that's really the key. Because with interest there's not blame, there's not judgment, there's not expectation. It's just that, you know, okay, what's going on? What is this? And then, then resting. Letting go of the figuring out mind. say two things and I don't feel like I'm an expert on depression so I, this is just kind of a tentative a foray it seems to me that the ground for working with it before you even get into trying to figure out okay what's what's underneath it or what's in it is really practicing looking at what your relationship to the depression is. That that really can be a key. Because very often our relationship to it, the habituated relationship to it, actually works to obscure an understanding of it. So just as a couple of examples one relationship which probably is not so profitable but which is not uncommon is the relationship of being very identified with it I'm feeling so depressed so if you can see that when that arises and then again stepping back and taking whatever that experience you're having of depression whatever it is whether it's low energy or 
a heaviness of mind or a whatever, whatever form it's taking, with that very experience is what you're bringing the awareness to. Right? That itself becomes the object of the mindfulness. In terms of uh, the... Uh, or emphasizing particularly whether or not you are caught in the identification or whether you're in that place of acceptance of it as a feeling. Because without the acceptance as the foundation, it's very hard then to really get to the more subtle underneath aspects of it. In addition to the relationship of being very identified with it, you might also find that there's a lot of aversion to it. I hate this. Well, that also obscures or hinders the possibility of understanding it. So when you're working in this way, at this, at this point, you're not trying to do anything in particular about the depression itself. You're really working with how you're relating to the depression. Do you follow? Yeah. Then, and, and this will take some practice because we have long established patterns you know, of how we relate. But when we can get to the place of acceptance, then from that place it becomes easier you know, the mind has a certain level of, you could say, spaciousness or ease to go into it. Um, so that, that would be the approach I would take. I'll just mention, it was not working with depression, but it was working with fear. Very deep, primal fear. I mean, it's just overwhelming fear. I, at one point in my practice, it felt so primal I was afraid to go from sitting position to standing. And I was basically afraid to move. You know, so it was not irrational, it was just... And I was on retreat and just working with fear, 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 you know, and trying to get a hold of it. And after days and days of trying to be mindful, I remember I was doing some walking meditation and something switched in my mind and I remember dropping down a level or many levels where I said to myself, if this fear is here for the rest of my life, it's okay. And that was a moment. Because that was the first moment in all of those days that I became truly accepting. All that other time, fear, 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 it was not acceptance. I was, <laughs> go away. <laughs> right. And it was amazing, in that moment of acceptance, the whole thing washed through. Now, I'm not suggesting that it always happens, you know, you, that either that it's easy to get to that place, or that you do and all of a sudden the whole... But it showed me the possibility. It showed me a direction. And the subtleties of acceptance and non-acceptance. So it would be interesting just to explore this and see whether it's helpful or not. Question about uh, friends that mentioned concentration exercises uh, as tools to investigate the integration with uh, uh, 
unconscious material that was surfacing in dream life on the street. Um, and that, I mean, I'm aware of the, uh, the mindfulness of the body and mood and thought, et cetera, and what's going on. I didn't know if there were additional particular concentration exercises um, that I just wasn't, didn't, hadn't heard of. And also, if you talk a little bit about um, some of the deeper state of peace over the past few years that might have come to you. Um, one to know that, yeah, there is, you know, I mean, other than these fleeting moments that come every 19th sitting, you know, is there is a good reason to, to approach this without being fierce and greedy. Right. <laughs> Okay, the first question, as I understood it, are there some particular concentration exercises that help yeah. that help in the integration of dream? Of the, of the deeper unconscious material that can be presented as powerful earthquake dreams right, right. in the midst of a, you know, yeah. isolated dream. Yeah. I think it's not actually that that integration, that opening to an integration, uh, is not particularly a function of concentration techniques, but actually a function of the mindfulness practices. Because in, in concentration, you're getting one pointed on a single object, and you're actually excluding everything else for a purpose. But in the mindfulness awareness practice, you are sitting and you're open to letting all of these things arise. And those of you who have done retreats are probably familiar with the phenomena of in, in sitting, you know, intensively, one's recall of dreams, dreams become very vivid and become much easier to recall them. And there is a natural process of that happening and the integration of it. So I think it's just this basic practice which actually is most facilitating of that. And I mean, that's very much been my experience. In terms of where's the payoff for all this effort, <laughs> it is amazing to me actually that people do it <laughs> and keep coming back for more <laughs> because it is so hard. You know, it's very hard. It's especially hard in the beginning. I mean, when I look back to the beginning of my practice, I, it was really hard. I was not one of these people who sit down and are just you know, instant samadhi, instant concentration. Uh, my mind wandered all the time. And I also could not sit even five minutes cross-legged. You know, the amount of pain was just way beyond what I could handle. But the one great strength, you know, that carried me through, I had a lot of faith. I just didn't have any doubt. It made so much sense to me. You know, that in terms of, as my teacher <laughs> said right in the beginning, if you want to understand your mind, sit down and observe it. And there's just no, there's no trip. You know, it's just, okay, here's my mind, my body, my life. If I want to understand it, pay attention. And so that faith kept me going. And over all these years, concentration does develop. And then one can learn to sit comfortably, whether it's cross-legged or in a chair. You know, there is a much greater ease and openness of energy flow in the body, you know, where often in the beginning, and the beginning here can be the first 20 years, <laughs> you know, there's, there can be a lot of tension and tightness, and, but generally the move, not always and not 
on schedule, but generally the move is a tremendous relaxation, letting go, unwinding of all the tensions, the knots in the body, emotionally, in our thought processes. The two main categories of peace that develop, one is the peace or the calm that comes from increased concentration when our minds are just not as scattered. You know, when we're not sitting thinking the whole hour, but we've just trained ourselves through coming back again and again, the mind does finally settle down a bit. And the more deeply concentrated we become, it gets very peaceful. I mean, meditation really becomes a joy. The other kind of peace, which is even, or happiness, which is even deeper than that, which is not so much connected to a state of concentration, but the freedom of mind of not grasping. You know, when we're in that state, you could call it like a free flow of awareness where there's not, the mind is not sticking to what's arising. You know, it's like maybe, I don't know, this analogy probably is not that good, but you know, white water rafting on just a good open stretch of river, you know, where there's just no holding. And so that freedom of not cl- the mind not grasping, not clinging, is so wonderful. And then, of course, we do. <laughs> and then we practice letting go. But so that's where it's going. And then, and then. I think that there um, are a couple of things. One is very much to make the off the cushion time a time of meditation. So that as these things come up in the busyness of your life and your relationships, that you are really treating that as best you can in a meditative way. Because then you will be dealing with the places of attachment and fear and aversion and all of the stuff and will develop the insight and wisdom from that attentiveness. In terms of your sitting practice, yeah, no, you no, you, you don't want to, there's a delicacy here. If you have, and some people do, have an ability to concentrate, you know, and can get into quite focused, calm states, that's fine. I mean, you don't have to go looking for trouble. Right? And it'll still come. <laughs> but the delicacy is, and this, this would be another whole Dharma talk, so I'll just <laughs> briefly. 
remind yourself deeply that what we're practicing for is not for a state of stillness or concentration. What we're practicing is the mind of not clinging. So that then even if those states come, which is fine, you don't get into the habit of right, holding on or thinking you're practicing for them. Right? You need to remember that what we're practicing is the mind that is not grasping at anything. Then whatever comes is fine. It's calm and peaceful, fine. If things start coming up, it's fine. So your basic intention is clear. In non-clinging, there is a great immediacy in the moment's experience, whether it's the breath or a sound or a sensation. It's like the mind is open and empty and clear. It's, it's as if you were, just for the moment, I mean, can you just be there in that moment, just hearing the sound, being told, having the immediacy of hearing. So, so you are really there, but the mind's not, mind's not grasping at it. Indifference is when there's a pulling away, when you don't have that immediacy. You know, and there's a, there's a kind of dullness in the mind, because it's really a withdrawal from experience. So it's a very different quality, and you might need to just pay attention at different times so you learn to become familiar with that difference. But one is very present, as I say, an immediacy, and the other is sort of a a greater withdrawal and a kind of dullness. It's flat. I seem to be mentally tongue-tied when it comes to knowing. Know whether it should be nouns or verbs or adjectives or you know, I'm just can't feel hindered that I can't get the aha putting a whole lot of stress into this. Okay, the, the, <laughs> the question is the <laughs> difficulty of finding the right word in the noting. One thing to understand is that you don't necessarily need to note. I mean, the noting is really a tool, lots of, I mean, it's particularly a tool of one particular lineage of teachings. And lots of other teachers teach mindfulness without noting. So don't obsess too much about whether you can do the noting or not. The more important aspect is whether you're actually being mindful of what's present. It may be, and let me back up for a minute. If you want to develop it as a tool, just to practice it as a useful tool, which it can be, start with some very simple things, like the breath, or hearing, or using generic notes. In other words, instead of trying to discriminate between different kinds of thoughts, just note thinking. With different feelings, just note feeling. You know, because it's just enough 
to reinforce the mindfulness of the experience. The only time when it's particularly helpful to play a little bit with accuracy of note, as I said earlier, if you're really feeling caught or stuck in something. So then it's, as I was saying before, you could just set back, okay, what's happening? And just see what word comes. Don't, don't be struggling to find it. Just sit back and, and maybe, maybe there'll be a few. Yeah, maybe you'll sit back, oh, restlessness, no, sleepiness, no, confusion. <laughs> you know, and just be playful with it rather than think, ah, oh, I've got to get this right. Because it's just a tool. The, the, the essence of the practice is the direct mindfulness of the experience. Yeah. No, great question. This actually was a whole part of the talk I left out. So <laughs> <laughs> one of the reasons that understanding which emotions and mind states are skillful and which are unskillful is not only for the quality of our own experience but because these mind states are also very often our motivations for action. And because the motives behind our actions really determine the karmic results of those actions, we need to know what our motivations are. If we don't, we are, we're just playing out all our habits of conditioning. Speech is a wonderful arena for practicing paying attention to the motive. Because we have a wide... If you're not yet convinced that self-knowledge is always bad news, pay attention to motives behind speech. Because there is a wide, wide range some of which is really skillful, a lot of which is really unskillful. Right? And it's just so illuminating. You know, if we, can, if we can be attentive enough so that before the words spill out of our mouth, which is a very challenging practice, but if we can just take that moment, and again, it's very intuitive. It's not, you don't have to do a whole psychological analysis here. It's basically that moment of checking in with your heart. You'll know, and you'll know in the moment. If you take the moment to pay attention, you'll know whether this is really an expression of some kindness or generosity or love or understanding, whatever, or whether it's some self-serving, you know. And so it, it's a great practice. And it's only by doing that that we can then make some choices. And if, if we don't catch that moment, we don't, we don't have the opportunity to choose. And in terms of sharing our afflictive emotions with others, how do you discuss them in a way that doesn't, make, doesn't get you identified with them while you're talking about them? But also, I kind of feel like it's a good idea to 
get them out of the closet. Yeah, no. No, absolutely. But there's a very difference between communicating in a really open, honest way about what we're feeling. Big difference between that and venting our feelings. I find it to be a kind of a fine line. Well, keep walking the fine line. You might notice, I mean, just for example, we could be acknowledging, you know, I'm, I'm feeling a lot of anger. And ooh, I'm feeling angry because this, this, and this happened, and I'm really... That's very different than blasting someone with our anger. I mean, it's very different. So I would just... And sometimes, if we're not in the habit you know, of communicating our feelings without being totally identified with them and venting in that way, it may take some practice. Mm-hmm. Like, my mother-in-law's sick, and part of my many feelings about her being sick is I'm angry at her for letting this happen to herself. I'm not going to get involved in right. why, right. why I'm allowed right. to feel that way. But, <laughs> <laughs> you know, to share with my friends that without just sounding angry, and just, you know, I forget. I start to talk about it and how she should have done this. Well, a very useful practice would be, and this ties right back into the meditative discipline of mental noting, pay attention to the tone of voice Mm -hmm. because that reveals a lot. And that's true in in sitting practice, in mental noting. You could be mental noting with a, a really angry, judgmental, Thinking, thinking, thinking. (laughs) Or just a simple acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, thinking. So the tone will reveal a lot. And if you're paying attention, when you notice that it's a really angry tone, take a breath. Settle back. Open up into your body. And what's very amazing, and again, I, I offer this, just try it for yourselves. Changing the tone with which we're communicating, whether it's internally or with someone, changing the tone of voice very often changes the mind state. So, I mean, these are simple things that we can learn to do. The Buddha talked often, and I... I I think practicing in the arena of right speech is just a huge part of what we can do. And the Buddha talked a lot of being gentle in one's speech. Even when one is saying very direct, honest, it doesn't mean being wimpy, but we can do it with gentleness. And it takes practice because our culture doesn't always reinforce that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.